Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. All right, so it's the end of the year. It's my second end of the year show today, but it's the end of the year. I, I guess that's because it's the end of the year. That's why I'm doing a lot of end of the year shows. Uh, and uh, we are going to talk about that in culture here on a not on its usual day episode of The Nose. What did we figure out about culture this year? Who's the real king? The Tiger King or the king of Staten Island? Who's the real Phoebe? Phoebe Bridgers or Phoebe Waller-Bridges? And why are those two things so similar? Questions like that will actually not be addressed or answered in any way on the show today. What we're going to do is we're going to bring, we've got six terrific panelists. We're going to take them two at a time. Uh, Each of them, uh, each pairing has kind of a a, a mission statement. (laughs) And we're going to just try to figure stuff out. And if that sounds vague... You should see the notes we have going back and forth. Although, in fact, what we probably should do is publish everybody's lists because all of our panelists came up with these really kind of interesting, you may hear some reference to these lists, some really interesting lists of things and in, in, in all kinds of mediums and things that weren't mediums. And All right, I got to shut up here. Uh, we're going to begin with Irene Papoulis, who teaches writing at Trinity College uh, and I think is like an original, original OG uh, nose panelist, uh, Bill Usman, a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. So yeah, we get the academics out here at the beginning because they're going to do the deep thinking uh, here about this. Um, but the deep thinking began, I think, with both Bill and Irene. They, they sort of came up with their lists. And Irene, when I looked at your list, I, I sort of had a very specific reaction, which was that you were you really were talking quite a bit uh, on your list about the curation of self. You were talking about newsletters. You were talking about Room Raider. Uh, for people who don't know, this is a thing on Twitter where they assess the room in the background of somebody who's speaking on a Zoom interview on a like big news network or something. We talked about you talked about the comedian Sarah Cooper and Leslie Jones tweeting short videos she took of MSNBC shows with her commentary about how much she loves the like Claire McCaskill's kitchen or something like that. I had the same. I had the whole thing about Claire McCaskill's kitchen myself. But, uh, you know, Irene, maybe you could begin just by saying a little bit about that. And I don't think that you started out with that as your mission to talk about that. But when I looked at your list, that's what I saw. Yeah. And I, I when I started to think what was um, my, my, you know, like, what did I what culturally was I interested in in terms of 2020? Um, th- that was one of the those were one of the first things that came to my mind. And, you know, like, movies i can barely remember the movies that i saw like more than two weeks ago but um and you know i was thinking about leslie jones in particular you know like watching msnbc people uh and commenting on what she saw in their background and i was thinking that's how i felt when i talked with some with my students on zoom i i was observing their background i couldn't say anything about it but it was there and it was sort of like another element of them and so then that just made me think about the, the the difference between the privacy. Yeah, in a way, if we're in our houses, we're more private, but it, we're also more public if our if our if our computer cameras are bringing us out into the world. And so that makes people feel like they have to be self-conscious about what's behind them and maybe change it. You know, like somebody has Room Raider likes flowers, uh, you know, appreciates having a flowers. And so then all these people that 
didn't seem to me like the kind of people that would normally have flowers in the background of their Zoom had these beautiful vases of flowers, you know? And so it's sort of like trying to curate, it's sort of a level of curation by, you know, objects and things, not only what we like, but just objects and everything that I found kind of interesting. Well, yeah, and Bill, you know, I mean, in uh, High Fidelity, Rob says, uh, you are what you like, not what you are like. Uh, and some of that curation of self seems to even go into the actual choices that we made. You know, as I looked at all these lists that people were coming up with, there's really way less overlap than there usually is. I mean, I think you and uh, Irene, uh, you know, liked one or two things in common. But it was everybody kind of went into their own little corners somehow. Yeah. And I do think that that's also, you know, it's kind of a phenomena of the new quote unquote media environment that we're living in. You know, when the three of us were growing up, there were kind of three television channels that pretty much everybody kind of watched except for a couple little odd things now. But now there's just such a plethora of media content that it seems like it's almost inevitable that it's going to get chopped up and it's going to get fragmented and people are going to be drawn to certain things. You know, we, we all shared our lists and there were things that appeared. There was a little bit of overlap, but then there were things that appeared on everybody's list who I'm sure the rest of us were thinking, yeah, I have no interest in, in that whatsoever. But I think related to this topic of, you know, the presentation of self and, you know, Room Raider and all of that, as we put together our lists and, you know, as we post things on social media and we prop things up behind us when we're on Zoom, I think we are thinking about how is this going to come across to other people? Am I going to include something on this list that I'm sharing with all these people that maybe I'm not quite, you know, if, if, I, if I was a huge, you know, fan of, uh, you know, the housewives of uh, San Tropez or wh whatever it is now, would I have included that on my list that I was sharing with you all who are people who I respect and who I'm, you know, kind of interested in? This particular group might be into it, but I don't know if I would share it with colleagues. So it's mm -hmm. all kind of meshed together, that, yeah. that fragmentation. The wine throwing episode, uh, episode seven on Housewives of uh, San Tropez, I thought really, really very powerful. Bill, I want to stay with you for a second because I, I think it'll get us back to an Irene point. So one of the things that's on your list that it so happens that I saw is Shirley, which is actually on a lot of uh, critics' yeah. uh, best uh, best film list of the year. This is a, 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 um, a movie ostensibly about Shirley Jackson uh, and about how in some ways the horrors of her... <laughs> of herself and her life, you know, seemed to mirror some of the horrors that she was so good at writing about and about kind of a guileless couple that come to visit uh, Shirley Jackson and her husband. And and it is very much a question about presentation of self, right? How am I, Shirley Jackson, mm. going to be understood mm. by people? And then there was like a second wave of that where Shirley Jackson's family was saying, well, that's really not really what she was like at all. And, you know, this was from the from the outset it's going to be a kind of a fictionalized version but there is something there about the piercing into the interior world yeah when this uh, so i'm i'm a huge shirley jackson fan um and so i was very interested in this movie shirley which uh is also based on a novel 
just called Surely. It's not a memoir. It's not a biography or anything like that. It is a novel. You know, it's a fictional story about this couple who comes to live with uh, Shirley Jackson and her family. And you're right. It is that uh, that intrusion of the outside into your interior space and how much of the real are you going to let other people see? Uh, one of the things that uh, that movie reminds me of a little bit, and there's something happening there as well uh, in common, is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Where, you know, this this outside couple comes into this academic couple's household and doesn't quite know what to make of what's happening. And at first there's some facade, but then that facade gets slowly revealed. So it was kind of like, you know, a Zoom phone call before we could even imagine Zoom. Um, and Irene, I don't know, maybe you just want to, I'll just let you react to that. I have some yeah, pointed okay. questions I should ask, but I'd rather hear your your, your thoughts. I, yeah, because I kind of want to go meta for a second on that, because I want to say, you know, like, all right, I haven't seen Shirley, and I am the kind of person who should have seen Shirley, you know, like, I I, I, <laughs> I, I find myself as that kind of person. And so when I hear you talking about it, and I think this happens so often, I feel a certain sense of anxiety, like, oh, my gosh, I haven't <laughs> seen Shirley, and I'm the type of person that should have seen so I better rush out and see it tonight, figure out how I can see it right away and see it tonight because I feel like I'm supposed to, I'm, I'm missing the boat or I'm not the kind of person that's actually seen that, you know, or something like that. And so I think that's another phenomenon that is so much with us too, you know, like you're supposed to, you, you know, because what you like determines who you are. And if you haven't liked something that you think should be a part of who you are, then you're, then, then you feel anxious, you know, because you can't, you, you know, you want people to realize, well, I haven't seen it, but really I, I'm going to see it tonight. I'm the kind of person that would see it, you know? Well, you yeah. know, can I, can, can I ask you a that's question really about that, Irene? Because I, because I, it's funny because I was sort of going to go exactly where you went, except I was going to point it right at you even more and say one of the things that I was noticing about your list, and I know you pretty well, we've known each other for a long time, is like particularly one of the categories you had was uh, crime detective series I discovered and loved this year, although they came out earlier. The Bureau, Ray Donovan, The Wire, Broadchurch, Dictu, which is uh, Danish and Zen, uh, which is, as you point out, Brits playing uh, Italians, uh, but speaking English. <laughs> you know, I... Do you think you sort of got a little bit more into that kind of stuff? That I, like, or in an ordinary year, I would have thought, yeah, you would have seen Shirley and maybe not watched all of Ray Donovan or something. Do you feel like left to your own devices, so to speak, you kind of gravitated towards a different kind of thing? Yes. Yeah. And in a way, it felt it feels a little funny to even say it, you know, because or at least the image that you and I think some people have of me is that I would I wouldn't be interested in crime and detective shows at all, you know, and it's sort of like Bill's saint housewives, you know, that we know you're watching, Bill. Um, now we know. <laughs> <laughs> but, I've revealed yeah. myself. Yeah. And so there's something about like, say, if I like Tiger King, which I couldn't stand, I only saw like 10 minutes of it. But mm -hmm. if I did, it w I probably wouldn't have put it on my list, you know, because it wouldn't be the mm -hmm. kind of person that I'm supposed to be, you know, or or something like that. You know, I think there's a yeah. Anyway, so I, I just I, I do think that's. Yeah. Or but on the other hand, it could be great. It's like how it used to be back in back in the 20th century when you would go to someone's house and you would see their records and say, wow, really? You like Gatto Barbieri? As as Bill said, he liked on Facebook. I was like, oh, my gosh, I love him, too. You know, and then you really feel a connection uh, with somebody based on what they like that surprises you. And those are good surprises, too. 
you know. Or, so or bad surprises. I mean, or bad surprises. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you, you can look at somebody's record collection and say, I got to get out of here right now. Exactly. Uh, or, that's true. Um, yeah. But, you know, that gets back to the question of what we say we crave, Bill, is authenticity. You know, I mean, that's like been for, I think, many years now, the coin of the realm. You know, we like we like John Stewart because he seemed just so authentic, uh, which I think he actually was pretty authentic. But I wonder if we really like authenticity so much as as much as we like stuff that entertains us with the I mean, one of the things that Irene was sort of saying is the minute anything started to get authentic this year, you know, with people on from their homes, you know, with their rooms in the background, they went out and kind of tarted it up and made it different. Mm. I mean, I, I, do, you, do you think we actually do crave authenticity or do we just tell ourselves that? I think we are completely inauthentic when we say that we crave uh, <laughs> authenticity. I think that, uh, <laughs> or maybe, I don't know, you know, because I'm just kind of thinking this through as you're posing it to me right now. I hadn't really thought about it before. What I'm just going to throw this out there. I wonder if what we crave is authenticity from others, or at least what we think is, but inauthenticity from ourselves. You know, are, 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 are we looking for that? Who is the real Irene Papoulis? Who is the real Colin McEnroe? But for what I'm giving to you all, I want to be a projection of Bill Usman. I'm not sure about that. You know, maybe. Is well, is that I, is that I mean is that part of the promise of Borat that we're going to see people that because of what he does we're going to see people in a way that they didn't necessarily intend to present themselves? Uh, wait, I I don't quite follow how that that's the promise of Borat. Well, in other words, you know, the idea of Borat is that he's pretending to be somebody who he isn't. He really isn't, and then people are going to be unusually candid with him. They're they're maybe going to talk to them. Uh, oh, talk to him. So when he goes and yeah, when he does the interviews with people yeah. as a character, yeah. you mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it is, and and I also yeah because and I think that's because it's there's so many layers that, you know, it's not like we either do or don't want to be authentic. I think we do in theory, but in practice, it makes us really uncomfortable. You know, it's uncomfortable to share things that the other person might think are strange or that might send them out of your apartment when they, when they see your records, you know, but at the same time, we do want to be seen. I think that still is a human desire, but we think, well, if I shape it in a certain way, which people have always done, but I think, but, you know, you know, I want you to, we probably want, to appear better than 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 we might think we are, you know, like we, that's where the anxiety I think comes in. You know, like I I want to have that flowers, those flowers there. I want people to know that I saw Shirley because I want them to think that I'm a certain kind of person, even if I'm not really that kind of person. And I think it's more interesting mm-hmm. to know what the person actually is, you know. But uh, you know, so it's so it's it's complicated. There's all there, there's a lot of different levels to it. Um, in a way that's hard to, you know, in a way, it's something that we've always had. People always, you know, even just down to like, what are you going to wear? You're going to present yourself in a certain way. But now there's so many, so many ways. I mean, when I heard about that wall of books, if I could bring that up, Colin, you know, that you can order a wall of books. Oh, I want to have like a progressive political wall of books that you can put behind you to have when you're on Zoom so that, you know, somebody will send you a whole bunch of books and you can have them there that have nothing to do with books you've actually read necessarily. And, so it's just so much of another level of 
you know, I'm going to put on this shirt because I want people to, because I want to be dressed up, you know, it's sort of like getting into these tiny little nuances of details that take us away maybe from who we really are, like who you really are becomes less and less, um, like visible because it's more, it's just, you know, who, who, who did you decide you want people to think you are? I'm going to let Bill have the last word, but before he does, and he can just say whatever he wants, but I do want to say that one of the dynamics I have noticed in Irene Papoulos in the decades that I have known her is that she firmly believes that whatever it is that you think about her, you've got her wrong. You have, you have incorrectly assessed her. Uh, so uh, so as far as I'm concerned, you've been way ahead uh, on this for a, a really long time. Uh, all right. So, Bill, you've got the last word. And that's probably the case for all of us. I think we always get each other wrong. You know, I think that's in some ways maybe both simultaneously the tragedy and the saving grace of human interaction. Um, I'll just quickly uh, make one more point. Another thing that appeared on my list of favorite things from 2020, I think directly relates to this. And it's uh, purportedly a novel by Martin Amos called Inside Story. But boy, when you read it, it sure comes across as a memoir. And it's so it's really playing with that idea of is it the real Martin Amos or is it the fictionalized Martin Amos? It's all about his real relationships with other writers that he had close friendships with. But then I learned after the fact that there's a character in it who is completely and totally made up and fictionalized. So I think that that novel Inside Story by Martin Amos really speaks to this whole conversation we've been having about the real versus the unreal who we are. All right. We're going to end this segment. Thanks to Irene Papoulos and uh, Bill Usman. We're going to end with something from American Utopia, the David Byrne musical that showed up on a number of people's lists. Public radio audience have to explain that is what that is that we are listening to, but that would be a WAP. Uh, we, I can't tell you what those letters stand for and continue on in my life in public radio. It's Cardi B featuring Megan Thee Stallion. Uh, it was a gigantic uh, hit this year, uh, and it might be the place that we begin our conversation uh, with a considerably younger pairing. Uh, Sam Haddleman is the host of The Sam Haddleman Show at Radio Free Brooklyn. Mercy Quay is founder and principal consultant for The Narrative Project and a columnist with Hearst Connecticut Media Group. So, Mercy, uh, both I think both you and Sam had this uh, on your list. Uh, talk, let's talk about why, why are we kicking off this segment with that particular thing? Um, because WAP was 2020's Declaration of Female Independence. <laughs> and I think, right, I mean, rap has a history of um, objectifying women's bodies. And, right, when even even to the point where um, when uh, female artists do the same, it's it's it is. 
um, judged in a different way into different standards. So Meg Thee Stallion and Cardi B coming together and saying, actually, we enjoy our bodies as much as men do was a great moment in 2020 and, and made us all forget, um, well, not made us all, but certainly made me forget that we were in the middle of a global pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, how about you? Um you know, when a song in hip hop gets a bunch of Republicans mad, that's kind of like a, a badge <laughs> of honor. That's when I know like NWA, Eminem, you know, when when the Republicans are mad, that's when I know, oh, I should probably be listening to this. There's there's probably a good reason. And, you know, it was the year of me escaping songs that I didn't want to hear on the radio or out. And this was one song that I, I honestly played a lot by myself. It was it was, yeah, I'll, I'll admit it here. And I, honestly, I think it's so funny that you played it. I feel so bad for like half the music I've made you play, but this is uh, this is definitely different. And um, I thought that their their collaborative effort was so good. And Cardi B really ruled the cultural landscape and music with like one song. I thought that was really amazing. The, I mean, the other I thing think, that happened, oh, go ahead, Mercy. And, and I, to your point, Ben Shapiro's uh, rendition, right, reading <laughs> off the lyrics of it, was was a moment of cultural gold, I think. And I, I think it backfired on him in that he wanted to make the point that this is, I think he says in it, you know, feminism, this is what feminism fought for. And I'm just like, yes, actually it is. It yeah. really is. <laughs> He's the worst representation of the short Jewish uh, cultural zeitgeist. So uh, hearing him uh, hearing him rap it was, was a highlight for me. <laughs> See, when you're Sam Hadleman, you can say that. Um, so the um, I, I did, the other thing that happened, which happens with everything now, I mean, one of the differences between culture now and culture even 10 or 15 years ago, and certainly culture further ago than that, is that it's rarely one way, it's rarely top down. So the response to WAP was a tremendous amount uh, of TikTok uh, dance challenges and dance challenges in other places. And, and I would say Mercy also, some of the structure of WAP encouraged people to literally get down uh, yeah. in, in their dance challenges. I mean, it, it, you know, even just hearing the the small bit that you all played at the beginning of the segment, I stood up and twerked a little, right? Because I think one, there is a all of all of the pieces of the song that come together to make it, as Sam would say, a bop. Um, you know, the rapping's great. I think that uh, Meg Meg's verse dominated Cardi's verse. I think that's wildly. Um, a thing that folks will agree with, um, even though, you know, Cardi fans will say that she, um, she out, out rapped Meg. What I think though is between the lyricism and the beat and the topic, um, folks who hadn't heard any of this kind of, right, uh, 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 music, musical claim to their own bodies, to female body, um, had no choice but to either analyze it for how good or bad they thought it was, or just dance, to your point, Colin, right? I, I think that you could easily listen to the song without analyzing it whatsoever and really um, take it for what it's worth as a summer as a summer hit. Right. And, but I think, Sam, it's also interesting that the degree to which the audience participates now uh, is a, a huge factor in how the product's understood. And it's funny because I never even got to hear this song out at a bar. Like, I didn't even, like, think about that for a second. Like, every other hit that makes people dance, I've heard out in public. I've seen what it can do. Because that's really the, the measure of how a song's worth. It's like, what does it make people do when they're outside? I haven't seen that. I'm judging this song holistically based off how I feel about it. And I, I, I honestly love it. And like Mercy said, 
you can analyze it. You can break down what's going on. Also, I think Cardi had the better verse. You can break down what's going on. It's just a great song. It has a classic sample flip in the back. The two verses are great together. The music video almost got banned on YouTube. They actually had to make it a clean version so they could put it on YouTube. It caused enough controversy and stir to make it the song of the summer and possibly the song of the year. All right. I want to shift gears here uh, and um, talk about two comedians who are linked together, uh, but have sort of had radically different destinies this year. And I'm talking about John Mulaney and Pete Davidson. Mulaney clearly has been a very close friend to Pete Davidson. And one had the impression over time that he was sort of a guy who was trying to help Pete Davidson's uh, Pete Davidson through all of Pete's pretty obvious and in fact unconcealed by Pete uh, problems with substance and with uh, with mental illness. Uh, I'm just going to give everybody kind of a sample of each one. Cat, uh, let's just start with O2. This is John Mulaney in this uh, special that I uh, kind of insanely admired called John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch. It's it's, it's a kind of a send up, uh, an affectionate, affectionate send up of things like Free to Be You and Me, children's programming of a certain era. Can I ask a question? Yeah, shoot. What's the tone of this show? How do you mean? She means, isn't it ironic or do you like doing a children's show? We talk a lot about that. That's the million dollar question. Um, well, first off, I like doing the show. I mean, the Sack Lunch Bunch is fun. But honestly, like, if this doesn't turn out great, I think we should all be like, oh, it was ironic. And then people will be like, oh, that's hilarious, right? But if it turns out very good, be like, oh, thank you. We worked really hard and act big humble. And then you win either way. That's the first lesson of this special I just decided. You can go very far in life if you pretend to know what you're doing. A lot of people in TV thrive that way. Name names. Sister, I could for hours. All right, we can fade that. Now, that's one. Now, let's hear uh, The King of Staten Island. This is Pete Davidson's movie, semi-autobiographical movie, uh, having to do with his attempt to deal uh, with the death of his own father. His father died as a firefighter on 9-11. Here's a bit of 03, Cat. Look, I I could tell you how I feel about firemen, but I I don't think you guys want to hear my opinion. No, 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 please, tell us. No, I want to hear. You don't got to do this, but come on. No. Yeah. Okay, how about this? Uh, if you're a fireman, just don't have kids or a family at all, okay? So that way you don't crush them when you don't come home that one time, you know? And, and you're just so selfish. You just hang out with your boys all day like it's a frat house. Half the time you're not even putting out fires. You're just jerking off watching Scarface, okay? All right, take it easy. No, I'm just saying. And it's wrong to tell a kid that you're going to be there for him for his whole entire life. You have you miss graduation. Your birthdays, okay? Uh, my my prom dances. It's a very mean thing to do to children. And uh, if you have a family, you, no, you're an take, it easy. take it easy. One way to look at it. Yeah. Tell that to my dad. Oh, but you can't, because he's dead. All right, so um, I'm going to start with you, Sam. You're you are a Pete Davidson fan, and he's been kind of an interesting figure during the pandemic, the shutdown, in terms of how he's presented himself to the world. And he, they did manage to get this movie out too. Say, say a little bit about what you think about him. Um, yes, I am the Pete Davidson fan. There's not many of us. Um, we're <laughs> out there. Uh, I actually saw him at College Street in New Haven with my mother. Biggest mistake I've ever made. I'm ne- I'm never allowed to take my mother to another event. Um, but I loved The King of Staten Island. I thought the pairing of him and Judd Apatow was so yin and yang. Um, I really thought that Judd Apatow really needed a win and Pete Davidson needed a win. And he has this thing where he can only play himself. 
And that's what Judd Apatow took and manipulated for the King of Staten Island and really brought the best out of Pete. Rather than like, oh, brother, here's Pete again, he kind of reinvented that image that he brings out. And I, I thought it was a great movie. It was one of the only 2020 movies I paid the $20 for to actually watch in full. But what I like about Pete Davidson is that he has an edge to him. I need my, and he understands millennial struggles. I feel like it's in, in comedy, there's a lot of people who, you know, misrepresent the millennial struggle. And Pete Davidson, someone who's so honest and forthright with what's going on with them, it, it makes people feel like they're not alone. And I think that's what I like about him. So, Mercy, you and I were denied the chance to talk about uh, John Mulaney. I think it was last week. Uh, but, but you know, here's John Mulaney, who's a little bit more, a lot more sort of clean-cut, buttoned-down, the kind of higher-functioning older brother maybe guiding Pete Davidson uh, through his wilderness. Except that Mulaney, you know, not that we want to traffic in celebrity misfortune, but he checked into rehab, which I just really kind of didn't see coming, but then maybe did. And, and then it made me sort of think, you know, even back to the conversation we had in the first section about authenticity whether in fact we enjoy a performer because we really know him or because he's really good at not letting us know him. But but I just I, I didn't get to hear your thoughts last week. I want to hear them this week. Yeah, I think, you know, Sam said that Pete Davidson needed to win in the King of Staten Island. What I can say about 2020 for John Mulaney is that John Mulaney did not need a win this year. Right. I think this was, you know, Colin, I think at the beginning of the year, uh, I think I'm, it might have been this year that we were talking about the sack lunch bunch on the news. Right. And yeah. so we started this year talking about Sack Lunch Bunch and uh, ended off t- with uh, John Mulaney checking into rehab all of what, eight weeks after hosting Saturday Night Live. Right. I think that shows me one, <laughs> his range. <laughs> John Mulaney's got range that I didn't give him credit for. We, we, we gave him credit for being this, you know, buttoned up and clean cut comedian it was like if there's no one who is just wholesome out there in the world it's john mulaney and i think that is in part why it took um his 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 uh rehab issues took folks by surprise we we didn't expect this otherwise clean cut comedian from chicago who um is in the sacrament bunch especially sort of reminiscent of um mr rogers he wears a suit, a full-on, in some cases, three-piece buttoned, um, three-piece uh, double-breasted suit for his stand-ups. I mean, this guy talks about, in his jokes, getting older in the style of now he bur- talks through his burps and just tries to suppress them, right? He, he's coming, this John Mulaney is a coming-of-age story that went wrong this year. And, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing um, what 2020 has to to. Um, has in store for John Mulaney, because I don't think that we are by any means seeing the last of him. Oh, no, absolutely not. Yes. I mean, he just clearly had unexpended uh, material and talent. He took a completely unnecessary job as a staff writer on Late Night with Seth Meyers uh, last month. And then right around that time, it hosted uh, SNL and was really getting a lot of plaudits for being kind of the current best uh, SNL host. But it also gets to Sam, and this is a very long conversation for which we have about like 78 seconds, is, you know, I mean, the difference between the autobiographical performer and the more uh, cultivated performer, the performer who's telling you uh, a different story. I mean, so much of hip hop, it strikes me, is autobiographical in one way or another. You know, that 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 authenticity uh, and, and confessionality uh, are are highly prized virtues. I, I don't know as much about hip hop as you do, but it's hard for me to think of, of a performer who doesn't, to some degree or other, 
fit that description. But but react to that. Yeah, I, it, it goes back to Goffman, and I can't believe I'm bringing this up. Who says communication <laughs> degrees are worthless? Uh, shout out <laughs> Professor Galan. And it kind of shows it, it's not really, and it's kind of sad, it's not really about what's going on with you. It's about how you present it and how people are relate are able to relate to it and how people are able to picture your life in their head. You know, as a critic, as someone, well, I guess I'm a critic, the, the best feeling in the world, the hole in one for me is when something makes me stop and think and visualize and put something in my head. And I think that's the authenticity across the board, whether it's comedy, whether it's hip hop, whether it's movies. That's what I was searching for this year. And that's what I really was craving, something that just made me hit the pause button and be like, oh, man, should I think about this? And I think that's the thing in hip hop and everything that we've talked about that kind of brings it all together, especially bringing in Goffman. Again, I can't believe I'm talking about that, but yeah, somehow yeah. other in the emails for the show, Irving Goffman's presentation of self in everyday life started to get <laughs> kicked around, which I just wasn't aware anybody uh, ever talked about uh, at, at all uh, these days. We're, we're kind of almost out of time. Um, and I don't know, Mercy, is there, you and Sam had a couple of other things in common, um, Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country, uh, I May Destroy You. I don't, is there one of those you, you quickly want to mention here? I mean, I think what we've seen this year in 2020 in, in all the ways that the civil unrest and racial unrest have um, examined um, and sort of brought the uh, racial underbelly of um, America to a head. What we've also seen in art is that black artists have, again, I'll use this word range. Um, I may destroy you, um, uh, Michaela Cole's uh, real assessment on what rape culture is, um, I would say in our society, not just in um, the UK, but in our society, straight down and through to Lovecraft ca- uh, country, where we see Misha Green, who was a writer on Underground, put together this beautifully crafted story that is Afrofuturism in addition to fantasy storytelling. I mean, that, for me, epitomized what uh, Black art can be, and and the answer is sort of whatever it wants. That's a very cool way to describe it, Mercy. Thank you for that. And so, Sam, we're about to go out with Taylor Swift. Not like go out with Taylor Swift, but we're going to go out with Taylor Swift. Explain why we're going out with Taylor Swift. Uh, because Taylor Swift dropped two of the best albums of the year. And, I, and I've and i gone on this show and I've said how much I don't like Taylor Swift, but I gave it a chance in quarantine. She brought the best group around her. Jack Antonoff, who's a fantastic producer, Aaron Desner from The National, Bonnie Vare pl- pretty much plays every instrument on the album. And she kind of just went back to her roots. She brought that pop quickness that we kind of liked from her, but was kind of getting uh, diluted and the folk uh, intro to her career that she had and brought it all together for an album I truly cannot stop listening to. It is embarrassing how much Taylor Swift merch <laughs> money she I have, I have spent. And I can't believe I'm saying this on public radio, but you should really check it out. Like, I, I it gets the cosign from me. All right, Hip Hop Maven confesses Taylor Swift <laughs> devotion. Uh, that's the scoop at the end here. Mercy Quay, Sam Haddleman. We'll go out with Betty by Taylor Swift. Betty, I won't make assumptions about why you switched your homeroom, but I think it's because of me. Betty, one time I was riding on my skateboard when I passed your house. It's like I couldn't breathe. You heard the rumors from Ines. You can't believe a word she says most times, but this time it was true. The worst thing that I ever did was what I did to you. All right, we are back. 
Uh, let me quickly say a thank you to Jonathan McPants, uh, who is the producer of this episode and who's really done some stellar work uh, over the last week or two. I don't know if you get to hear uh, his production of the best of Jim Chapdelaine and Big Al, but it was pretty amazing and a cause for great delight uh, for our listeners. Uh, and the special thanks to Cat Pastor all through this time when we've been making changes and adjusting and things like that uh, is Cat uh, Pastor, the, the person who's there in the studio and making it all actually work. So thanks to both of you. Uh, yeah, we're going to, uh, in our final segment, bring together Rebecca Castellani, who handles social media marketing and event planning for Quiet Corner Communications, and Tanisha Dugan, an artistic producer at Theater Works. She's joining us via the miracle of Skype. I don't know why we're supposed to say that, but we are. Um, and all right, so well, let's begin with um, the fact that both of you have been involved uh, over the recent years with live performances. And live performances were the things that really couldn't happen this time around. So I want to ask sort of both of you about that. I mean, Rebecca, I know that you sort of saw in artistic responses to the inability to perform live a, a, a lot of innovation uh, that might even, some of which might even be worth keeping when we go back to quote unquote normal. Can, can you say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I feel as though this was kind of happening in the music industry even before COVID. We were starting to see a lot more uh, technology infiltrate the concert experience, everything from VR to, you know, custom audio experiences. All of this technology was kind of percolating before COVID, and COVID really was the catalyst to move a lot of this stuff forward. You know, you've seen a lot more stuff available online to stream. People are still working very hard to replicate the feeling of actually being in a concert without physically being there. And I think that some of this really is worth keeping around. I mean, you are opening up the consumption for stuff like this to an audience that typically doesn't get that. You know, there's a lot of people that can't afford to go see a live concert or a, you know, Broadway play, but they can't afford a subscription to Disney Plus and stream something like Hamilton. And I think it's it's great to allow culture to be consumed by more people. And if that is a positive outcome of the pandemic, I'm here for it. Yeah, Tanisha, you know, I, I think I said in an email to you guys that, I've been sort of keeping track of all the cool theater stuff that's uh, available on uh, in streaming forms, uh, digital forms. Uh, I'm a subscriber in some years to New York Theater Workshop. They've done some incredible stuff, including a production of Chekhov that used Sims <laughs> characters. You know, and it all looks really interesting, but I don't ever watch any of it. And I'm a big theater junkie. And, and I'm sort of wondering about that, too, that you know, that there's a gulf between how much I appreciate all that innovation and whether I'm partaking it. But it could be just that I'm in a mood. So you react. Uh, I don't know if you're in a mood. I mean, I'm a semantics girl, right? So I would say live performance hasn't died, but your ability to watch it in person has uh, been. <laughs> um, and I think that's the thing that you're craving the most, right? Which mm -hmm. is that communion with other people to engage in culture. Um, and I think you guys talked a little bit, of, you know, you brushed against it a little bit in the first segment um, when Bill was talking about, you know, there was a time when there was only three um, stations, right? And I was reading an article, I forget where, and, and they were sort of a likening, you know, watching those shows and having to pick and, you know, Charlie Brown Christmas coming on and all of the kids being like, we know that that's what we're going to watch and we're all going to experience that together um, as a television watching thing. And, and now that you can curate every part of your life, even the culture that you watch, to a point in which you are engaging in almost everything alone. 
to me, the thing that you're looking for isn't necessarily the art form per se. Um, although I think there's something to be said about your disinterest in the Sims and the seagulls. I <laughs> think <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic, but. Oh, um, did you watch it? I watched some of it. So, well, didn't it also get really long? Because I thought they were like, because it was on Twitch yes. or something, they were stuff was like flowing in from the audience too. Yes, very, which is the, I think the thing that makes it uh, exciting and what makes it feel live. But I was definitely of the like, I love The Sims and I yes. like the people as an actor. Um, but I would prefer to play The Sim. I want to be in control of the world without the rest of you. So... <laughs> <laughs> my engagement but i think it's i think it's amazing and to rebecca's point you know we've been in, in you know we've been talking about engaging with technology for you know a decade uh we've been talking about engaging with accessibility and making ourselves speaking about theater in particular uh making ourselves more accessible to folks uh and the the pandemic the plague has made it a requirement so you know it's it's i think there will be things that remain i hope that there are things that remain um and i think the things that will remain are the things that really touched on connection in a way that we were all craving and, and lacking. You know, and Rebecca, I also wonder about it with live music, too. And one thing that I sort of have been thinking is, and, and it gets right back to your point about, well, you know, not everybody could pay for this stuff in the first place. There is mm -hmm. a sense of privilegedness that you feel if you've got tickets to go see Elvis Costello or you know, Mary J. Blige or whoever, you know, and you're going to get to sit there with X number of other people uh, and you're going to see this show. Um, and and to me, one of the problems I think with streaming is I don't feel that at all. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, there was an Elvis Costello slash Lyle Lovett thing that I, I absolutely should have streamed. I didn't even bother. And I worship both of them. I don't know. Maybe it just didn't feel special and, and kind of isolated to itself enough, if you know what I mean. Well, sure. And I to Back to Tanisha's point, I mean, that's that's the rub here, right? We're not necessarily sacrificing the art. We're sacrificing the experience of consuming art together. And that's what we all miss the most. But I think that the idea that the experience of consuming art and culture could become more democratic is a good one. I don't think it's ever going to replace going to the Newport Folk Festival or going down to Jazz Fest in New Orleans. Like Those are experiences that transcend watching a single individual performance and I think that's where, you know, technology will probably never be able to replicate a live performance. And that's fine. That's, there's always going to be space for a live performance for that reason. But just to allow other people the chance to see the American Ballet Theater dancers in action without having to have a ticket to it and go in person, that's a wonderful thing that I think, you know, we should have stick around even as the pandemic, hopefully, knock on wood, dwindles down. All right. You I know, think I, just, yeah, go versus, ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I think versus uh, that Instagram um, battle show, music show, has actually yeah. been the closest to an, a communal experience of music this entire pandemic. And for those of you who don't know, versus is, is on Instagram. Uh, it was a brainchild of uh, Swizz Beats and Timbaland. Um, I forget who the first sort of matchup was, but they've done a number of matchups mostly within what, what one would call black music. Um, Patti LaBelle and Gladys Knight um, were one. Erica Badu and Jill Scott were another. Uh, Gucci and Jeezy were another. Um, 
And and those were like date nights, you know. I, I if you follow yeah. the, the black Twitter, as one would say, uh, <laughs> you would you would see people being like, "All right, what's she, what's she gonna wear on Friday to watch Erica and Jill? Oh, we got to get the candle set. Oh, got to make sure the incense are burning. Make sure your <laughs> auntie knows how to get on Instagram because you know this is her favorite, you know, duo, and she's never used Instagram before. I think there are ways for us, and I, I've used this analogy all the time, right? Before the pandemic, there were people getting married having met online. There are people finding yep. others to watch their children online. Um, there was there was community and connection happening online, even for those of us who begrudgingly are Luddites and we're like, absolutely <laughs> not used to do that. Um, but I think there's something to learn. Um, and, I, and I'm with you, Rebecca, the democratization of culture um, has been fantastic. And I actually fear that there will be a, a wider gulf between those who can afford to watch in person um, and those who cannot, precisely because the p- pandemic is going to dwindle, right? right. Um, and the choices that um, venues will make as the pandemic dwindles um, may come down to pricing structures that mm-hmm. do not allow folks to join uh, across um, socioeconomic um, strata. So it, it'll be an interesting 2021 and beyond. So we're running short on time. I, I think I'm going to just go in this direction. So one thing that Bill Usman was kind of marveling at was that some of the younger panelists, when they made their kind of lists of cultural highlights or or landmarks, uh, they sort of put everything together. So, uh, Rebecca, you've got Fiona Apple, The Devs, which is on Hulu, I think, uh, Mike Pence's Fly and Mitch McConnell's Horcrux <laughs> Hand and Giuliani's Ooze Down His Face and then the incredible sorrow over the unexpected deaths of Kobe Bryant, Chadwick Boseman, uh, Kellyanne uh, daughter's Conway going, uh, Kellyanne Conway's daughter going rogue on TikTok, uh, on and on and on. The, the Savage and WAP, we talked about that in the last thing, The Crown Season 4, Middle Murder on Middle Beach, uh, Bore which we also talked about, um, the trial of the Chicago Seven, uh, Dylan selling his entire catalog, Big Mouth season three. You've sort of got them all together, kind of in a way. I'm wondering, maybe because so much of it's all just absorbed digitally, uh, it just all seems kind of like just part of a flow. Yeah, and I also have no concept of time anymore. So I was (laughs) making an attempt. I was like, should I try and organize this by like chronology or likes and I was like you know what this is all just sort of washed together in my brain this year I couldn't tell you what month I saw something in what time of day it was and that's kind of how I feel about the year interview in general like when we were first tasked with the show my knee-jerk reaction was there really hasn't been that much out this year but then listening to you know my fellow panelists and kind of taking some time to think about it there has been a lot it's just felt so non-linear that it's hard to kind of look at the year in review. I mean, it feels like I've lived a lifetime in this year. <laughs> like, <laughs> Tanisha, react to that, yeah. Um, react to that. Um, no, my no. reaction <laughs> to that. No, no, no. I have I have so many reactions to that, which um, I think starts with the collective grief of this year is like so overwhelming. I think it's hard to want to see Um the brilliance that actually came out of this crazy transition. Um, and so I, I'm like, I'm riding with you, Rebecca. I think that's, that's, that's exactly where we are. Um, and, and react, my other reaction is actually coming from the first uh, segment where I was sort of thrown at this idea of authenticity and, and how we want to put ourselves into the world and how we subvert our own selves Um even in the midst of like deep, deep crisis. Um, and so I think I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, there was some, the, the year on a, like 
undeniably was was difficult, right? I think we all can count on many fingers how many things we've lost in this fire. But there's been, you know, to be with my children, you know, mm. Bluey was on my list, which, you know, something I watched in 2019, but good God, was it all of my 2020. Um, eating dinner with the people I live in, in this house with, uh, talking to y'all, you know, intermittently throughout the year. There are things that are like the rhythm of my life that are so real that I flew by um, that I think if we if we allow the quiet to settle in instead of the noise of how to be busy, um, I think we can see that like the lesson of the of the year was about about true authenticity, who you really are and how you want to fill up your time and your space uh, and running from that. Is. May, may 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 have you encountering a 2021 and beyond that is that is not uh what you desire so i'm i'm hoping a little more authenticity and space and enjoyment for the fact that it's all f-ing. oh oh i'm sorry <laughs> i was just about to say that you had landed the plane perfectly you were just gliding in on this to this perfect How 2020 four, is that though? four point landing and then uh well any so that is in fact where we're going to end and uh, so much of what Tanisha <laughs> had to say was perfectly profound show, I, mean, I, I do want to say also that it is my great pleasure to talk to all of these people just as uh, she said and uh, um it really is uh something that i look forward to every week and i hope you do too uh, you people who listen to the nose and now you'll never know what thing cat cut out of what tanisha said before it got on the air so there you go uh we'll be back in the future whenever whenever the future is and wherever it is Hey,